0: Hi, Dave Romney here. This is, for the record, program number 1209, The Narco-Fascism of Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang, Part 16. This is being recorded on October 20th of the year 2021. We are uh, winding down, perhaps uh, a little bit late for some people's taste, but uh, we're winding down to the conclusion of this series, and we'll then uh, continue with other areas of inquiry before we get into uh, this program, however. Four quick points at the top of each, for the record, description, and at the top of each Food for Thought post, there is a link which will enable you to subscribe to the comments, most of which are made by our brilliant contributing editor Tara Fractal, and some by other listeners as well. Another link will enable you to subscribe to the podcast of For the Record that is being uh, uh, crafted or is, is being made by Sister station WFMU. So if podcasting is the best way for you to consume the program, there is a link at the top of each for the record program description and at the top of each food for thought post that will enable you to subscribe to the podcast. Yet another link at the top of each program description and at the top of each uh, food for thought post is a link that will enable you to ob- obtain the 32 gigabyte flash drive with all of my life's work on it plus a mini library of old anti-fascist books on easy to download PDF files. And before the record, so to speak, uh, I am now in my 43rd year on the air, and all of that uh, uh, work, and there's a whole lot of it, is available on that 32-gigabyte flash drive. The newest iteration of the flash drive will be crafted in a couple of weeks. It will be up-to-date. It will have all of the series on the narco-fascism of Chiang Kai-shek, plus an update on the uh, SARS-CoV-2 slash COVID Nineteen pandemic, the Oswald Institute of Virology series. Uh, I once again get no money whatsoever from that flash drive. Now, uh, as I mentioned, by the way, before we get into the subject material of tonight's program, uh, or today's program, that uh, uh, I turn each food for thought program into a written description. Uh, I realize this is an incredibly pedantic form of broadcasting. To make it easier, uh, I have crafted written descriptions of each program, and uh, listeners may find that to be of value. Now, in this conclusion uh, or concluding portion of this series, we are taking a look. We're sort of dollying out, and we're not only taking a look at how uh, the policy of the U.S. prior to and during World War II, and even after World War II, toward Chiang Kai-shek and his narco-fascist regime helped to uh, craft or shape America's post-World War II foreign policy in Asia. We are going to take a look at the larger picture. We are taking a look at the larger picture as well. Uh, Repeating, once again, a passage from the book The Sung Dynasty, S-L-O-N-G Dynasty, by Sterling Seagrave. Uh, it is, some people say it is still in print. There are both hardcover and softcover editions. There is a Kindle edition available from Amazon. Uh, so it certainly is available, and, uh, again, I can't recommend getting the book strongly enough. Uh, Sterling Seagrave, and we'll talk about this in our concluding broadcast in this series. Uh, Sterling Seagrave has paid dearly for writing this book and his other books as well. In the Sung Dynasty, published in hardcover by Harper and Row, copyright 1985 by Sterling Seagrave, uh, we read about one of the State Department's uh, high-profile flax, frankly, a guy named Stanley, Hornbeck, H-O-R-N-B-E-C-K, uh, he is described by Strolling Seagrave as follows. The Doyen of States for Eastern Division, and goes on to say the Hornbeck, had only the most abbreviated and stilted knowledge of China and had been out of touch personally for many years. He withheld cables from the Secretary of State that were critical of Chang and once stated that, quote, The United States' Far Eastern policy is like a train running on a railroad track. It has been clearly laid out, and where it is going is plain to all, unquote. It was, in fact, bound for Saigon in 1975, with whistle stops along the way at Peking, Kwamoi, Matsu, and the Yellow River, uh, Saigon, obviously, a reference to the Vietnam War. We'll be getting into that uh, in this series. Uh, Kwomoi and Matsu are two tiny islands in the Straits of Formosa between mainland China and Taiwan that were a bone of contention during the, uh, Uh, First Cold War, and uh, the Yalu River is a reference to the river that borders both North Korea and China. In the Korean War, as I've said many times, uh, Douglas MacArthur, in charge of the UN forces in Korea, was advised as they were driving through the north by military intelligence officers not to approach the Yalu River. They warned that if MacArthur did that, China would enter the war. Well, MacArthur disregarded their expert advice and did what they advised him not to do, and that had the results which he had uh, been warned about, namely the Chinese came in. And what resulted was what Americans call the Battle of Chosin Reservoir. Uh, The Chinese have a different uh, name for that. It was a military disaster for the American and UN forces. Uh, we have been talking, again, I think that ironically, and I think uh, Sterling Seawake meant the same thing here, I think Stanley Hornbeck's assessment of U.S.-Asian policy, like a train running on a railroad track, it has been clearly laid out, and where it is going is plain to all is, in fact, at, tragically... And sadly accurate, and I believe that is basically what we are going through today, but we are uh, going through some of the aspects of America's Asian policy. In our last program, we took a look at the profound Nazi and SS connections to the contingency plan by the U.S. and uh, its allied countries to use Chiang Kai-shek's Forces to reoccupy mainland China after a nuclear attack was launched on mainland China. We also took a look at the resuscitation of the Nazi SS propaganda film from the Third Reich days to be shown to German audiences. And we spoke about the uh, background of the 167, 162nd, excuse me, uh, Turkestan region. That was a Third Reich military formation that ultimately was part of the Wehrmacht and the Waffen-SS uh resuming that discussion with an item that we uh, concluded very quickly in our last program, and this concerns uh Isa Yusuf Alpekin. He was an ally of Chiang and the uh Kuomintang, and he was the patriarch of the Uyghur separatist movement in Xinjiang Province a book which is obviously uh, something of a written apologia for Pan-Turkism. It is called A Dark Path to Freedom, Ruzi Nazar, from the Red Army to the CIA, by Enver Altali, A-L-T-A-Y-L-I, uh, translated by David Bartford, and uh, translation copyright by Bartford by Hurst and Company London, a uh, hardcover edition. And it describes Ruzi Nazar, who uh, was taken prisoner while serving for the, with the Red Army in World War Two, and then uh, promptly switched to the Turkestan Legion, and ultimately was part of not only that formation, but the Birgavanger Brigade as well. That was an SS punishment unit that was among the most ruthless of the Waffen-SS units. After the war, Nazar went to work for the CIA, and he was the representative for the anti-Bolshevik bloc of nations, at Wackle's nineteen eighty four conference in Dallas, Texas, Wackle being the former World Anti Communist League, and reading from the Dark Path of Freedom. This was his attempt to uh, maneuver the aforementioned Isa Yusuf. I'll take into the Bandung Conference in 1955 in Indonesia. That was a conference of what was to be called non-aligned nations or third world countries. Basically countries that did not want to be either part of the Soviet bloc or part of the U.S. and NATO bloc as well during the Cold War. Uh, skipping down. Ruzi pulled the press office of his plans and they informed journalists and delegates of the press conference to be given by Ruzi Nazar, observer delegate from Turkestan and a former officer in the Turkestan Legion. Again, that um, was ultimately a, 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 a Wehrmacht and Waffen-SS formation of uh, Turkic, or Turkophone nationals from the former Soviet Union and skipping down. Sayyip so Shamil had wanted to come to Bandung along with the Uyghur leader Isa Yusuf Al-Pekin, again, as we looked at a couple of shows ago. He was a, an ally of Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang, and uh, the patriarch of the Uyghur separatist movement in Xinjiang uh, province. So yet, Shamil had wanted to come to Bonbon bon, along with the Uyghur leader Isa Yusuf Al-Pekin, the former Prime Minister of the Republic of East Turkestan, which had been broken up by Chinese armies in 1949. But Shamil was the only one to obtain a visa as the Chinese government had put it, had, as, as the Chinese government had put pressure on the Indonesian government to stop al from being given one. And, uh, Again, uh, we looked at Nazar in uh, AFA program number 21 about Western intelligence connections to the shooting of the Pope. He was a CIA uh, implant into the national, the pan-Turkist, fascist National Action Party or National Movement Party of al Turkesh at the time that uh, Mehmet Ali Aja uh, assassinated Mum Chu, who was a Turkish investigative reporter. Later, he miraculously escaped prison and was able to shoot the Pope in 1981. And as we have seen in uh, our series, by the way, the series dealing with the Dalai Lama, I've misidentified uh, it. It is, for the record, 547, 548, 540, uh, 547, 8, 9, and, uh, I believe, uh, 550 as well. And one of the allies of the Dalai Lama is Erkin Alpekin, the son of Isit Yusuf Alpekin and part of the Uyghur, uh, World Uyghur Congress that has been used to destabilize China, uh, well, really the the Uyghur milieu, since uh, the early 1950s. And uh, it is a recipient of a a great deal of U.S. intelligence financing at this stage of the game as well. As we have looked at in a number of programs, I will put links in the broadcast uh, so that people can uh, examine those. At their leisure, now we have been speaking about the Dalai Lama. I think since uh, the Dalai Lama is arguably the face, so to speak, of the quote "Free Tibet" unquote movement, uh, and is some someone who really has been elevated to a semi-divine status uh, within uh, so-called liberal or progressive elements. Um, You walk into a health food store, you're very likely to see magazines at the checkout stand uh, featuring the Dalai Lama. And, uh, again, he is something of a minor deity to uh, a lot of uh, the uh, veterans of the so-called counterculture of the 60s and related elements. Uh, As I mentioned in our last program, I have encountered no more powerful concept in for, now in my 43rd year on the air, then the concept of the big lie. As Adolf Hitler noted in Mein Kampf, most people tell little lies. They would be ashamed to tell big ones. They would never credit others with such great impudence as the complete reversal of facts. Even explanations would long leave them in doubt and hesitation, as any trifling detail would dispose them to accept a thing as true. And that is true of the Dalai Lama. He is the antithesis of the benign, gentle, worldly, wise, peaceful individual. He is represented as being... Two of his former top aides who uh, have published under the name the pseudonyms of Victor and victoria tremondndi p r i m o n d i that 's not their real names that is available online uh, they have written a book called The Shadow of the Dalai Lama and also given some interviews about the Dalai Lama. Again, I encourage people to uh, secure that book. I think it's only available online, um, but if it is available in uh, print form, particularly in English, uh, please do get it. Again, I get, get no money from this. But they basically reveal the truth about the Dalai Lama in addition to his manifest SS connections and some of his other right-wing and fascist connections. Uh, The theology, so to speak, of Tibetan Buddhism and the Dalai Lama in particular is discussed in detail by the Chamandis in an interview with James C. Stevens, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-S on the 2nd anniversary of the September 11th attacks uh, they discussed the Dalai Lama and some of the aspects of his outlook and uh, they point out here, by the way, this is in, for the record, program number 547, I thought by way of underscoring how our policy in Asia, and again we're the uh, uh Free Tibet movement. is part of our uh, policy in Asia and the aforementioned Avian, not in this program, but Avian Zens, who is the go-to person for the quote genocide unquote against the Uyghurs. He also by the way comes to us courtesy of the Captive Nations Committee which has a subsidiary of offshoot element called the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. That uh, is the Ideological and political launching pad for Adrian Zenz. It was pretty much the sole source of information on, or really disinformation, about, uh, the Uyghurs and Xinjiang province. Ironically, as he talks about genocide, he, he again is a part of an organization that is the offshoot of the Captive Nations Committee, co-founded by OUN World, uh, uh, basically uh, Ukrainian World Congress operative Lev Dobriansky, His daughter Paula Dobryansky uh, chaired the Tibet desk for the Bush, George W. Bush State Department. And the other co-founder of the Captive Nations Committee, which is part of the political launching pad for uh, Adrian Zenz, is none other than Yaroslav Stetsko, who was the wartime head of the Ukrainian puppet state or satellite state of Nazi Germany and presided over the genocide of Jews, uh, Russian nationals, and Poles in Ukraine. So it is very interesting. He, uh, that, that is to say, Adrian Zenz, is also now one of our, quote, experts, unquote, about Tibet. Uh, talking about the Dalai Lama, <clears throat> again, and his theocracy, the Chimandis say in this interview, The Dalai Lama, the god-king of Tibet, is the highest representative of Tantric Buddhism established in Tibet in the 8th century A.D. Tantrism, the last stage in the history of Buddhism since the 5th century A.D. in India, is based on ritual and magic formulas. Not unlike other religions, it also has quote, skeletons in its closet, unquote, which it carefully conceals. As a b- beam again, not unlike other religions, it also has quote, skeletons in its closet, which it carefully conceals as a guest in the Western world. Tibetan tantrism is a belief in spirits and demons, secret sexual practices, occultism, mind control, and an obsession with power. I I would interject, hey, what's what's not to like here? Continuing. In contrary to every democratic custom, the present Dalai Lama consults with the Nechung Oracle, a monk who is possessed by a Mongolian war god on all important state decisions. One more time. In contrary to every democratic custom, the present Dalai Lama consults with the Neptune of MECHUNG Oracle, a monk who is possessed by a Mongolian war god on all important state decisions. What primarily concerns us about the interreligious ceremony in the, Nathan- in the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. is the level of naivete in the West. For the past 25 years, the Dalai Lama has quietly performed the Kalashakra Tantra, of the Wheel of Time, the highest of all ancient tantric initiations for tens of thousands of spiritual novices in the West— introducing tantric ideology, secret sexual practices, and magic rituals integrated into the context of his religious-political worldview. Critical voices have been raised while he continues to secretly transmit the Kalashakra's prophetic vision of the establishment of a universal buddhocracy, Shambhala, in which spiritual and worldly power are united in one person, the world emperor or shakravartin, C-H-A-K-R-A-V-A-R-T-I-N, wherein other religions will no longer exist. In the Kalashakra Tantra is prophesied the establishment of a Buddhocratic empire, a clash of civilizations will arise as the military forces of Buddhism wage war, against the armies of non-Buddhist religions. Murderous superweapons possessed by the Buddhist Shambhala army are described at length and in enthusiastic detail in the Kalashakra Tantra text, Sri Kalashakra 1, pages 128 to 142, and employed against, quote, enemies, unquote, of the Dharma, the Buddhist teachings. Over the last five years in the German-speaking countries, these shadow aspects of Lamaism have led to a vast, steady, and increasing stream of criticism in the media. During the Kalashaka initiation of the Dalai Lama last year in Austria, there were very controversial debates on TV and radio stations and press media. The internationally well-known newspaper, Der Standard published an article entitled A Warrior Ritual with the Dalai Lama, the Kalashakra, unquote. The German Weekly of Christian Intellectuals, Rheinische Merkur, entitled an article, quote, What is Hidden Behind the Kalachakra Tantra? Supremely Ferocious Warriors, unquote. And then uh, James C. Stevens asked, Who are these non-Buddhist enemies spoken of in the Kalashakra teachings? I've seen articles in the Buddhist magazines, the Shambhala Sun, and Tricycle about lamas dressing up in military uniforms. I thought Buddhism was a peaceful faith Tramandi, The secret text of the Kalashakra explicitly names the leaders, unquote, of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam as the opponents of Buddhism, namely Adam, Enoch, Abraham, Moses, Jesus, Mami, the Prophet Muhammad, and the Mahdi, describing them as, quote, the family of the demonic snakes. This from the Sri Kalashaka 1, page 154. The final Armageddon-like battle, the Shambhala War, ends in the puhul victory of the Buddhists, The official Kalashaka interpreter, Alexander Berzin, openly compares the principles of the Islamic Jihad with that of the Shambhala War. As in the Islamic martyr ideology of Shambhala warriors who will be killed in the last battle have earned passage into the Buddhist paradise. The military scenarios in some Buddhist centers, such as the Shambhala training camps of the deceased Lama Toglen Chungpa, have until now only a symbolic meaning, and yet they are interpreted as a spiritual preparation of the prophesied great prophesized great Shambhala war, beginning again. The military scenarios in some Buddhist centers, such as the Shambhala training camps of the deceased lama Chogun Trungpa, have until now only a symbolic meaning and yet they are interpreted as a spiritual preparation of the prophesized Great Shambhala War. In the imagination of some lamas, all participants in a Kalashakra initiation have the questionable privilege of being reborn as Shambhala warriors, unquote, in order to be able to participate in the coming apocalyptic battle, either as infantry or officers, depending on rank. High lamas of particular lineages have already been assigned to commanding positions in the future." Again, the exact opposite of what we have been uh, told about the Dalai Lama. And I would note that uh, the Tibetans talk about Tibetan Tantrism as a belief in spirits and demons, secret sexual practices, occultism, and mind control, and an obsession with power. Three key passages of this. In contrary to every democratic custom, the present Dalai Lama consults with the Nipchung oracle, that's M-E-C-H-U-M-G, a monk who is possessed by a Mongolian war god on all important state de- decisions. Excuse me, one more time. In contrary to every democratic custom, the present Dalai Lama consults with the Nipchung oracle, a monk who is possessed by a Mongolian war god on all important state decisions. I'm skipping down. Murderous Super weapons possessed by the Buddhist Shambhala army are described at length and in enthusiastic detail in the Kalashakra Tantra text, Sri Kalashakra 1, 128-142. And again, the secret text of the Kalashakra explicitly names the leaders of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam as the opponents of Buddhism. Adam, Enoch, Abraham, Moses, Jesus, Mami, the Prophet Muhammad, and the Mahdi, describing them as quote, the family of the demonic snakes, unquote. I wonder how Erkan um, <laughs> Al-Pekin and the other uh, Muslims in the Uyghur milieu would react to that. And in that same interview, again, with James C. Stevens uh, on 9-11-2003, the second anniversary of the September 11th attacks, it describes not only some of the SS links to the the Dalai Lama again uh, he was tutored by a former SS officer named Heinrich Harder and also has maintained a long and uh, very favorable relationship with uh, one of the key participants in the SS expedition to Tibet, a guy named Bruno Begay by the way I misidentified the number of people that he later killed at Auschwitz, it was roughly 150 inmates And those are sadly representative of far too many of the Dalai Lama's associates. More in this interview. In our historical essay, Hitler, Buddha, and Krishna, an unholy alliance from the Third Reich to today, we show that the warlike and racist ideas of Heinrich Himmler of the S.S., and of other well-known neo-fascists have been fundamentally inspired by elements of different Asian religions, such as Vedism, Buddhism, Ramaism, and that prominent German Zen teachers, Burkheim and Herogel, have been convinced Nazis, parenthetically. We spoke about this in uh, our long series of interviews with Peter Govenda about his masterful work, the hitler Legacy. He talks about weaponized religion and posits it as a form of mind control, indeed. I think that uh, bears contemplation. Continuing, the Trimandis go on to say, It's really shocking in the SS Amemerba, which was the academic brain trust of the SS, that its chief, Heinrich Himmler, was openly engaged in ongoing discussions with the most distinguished German Orientalists of his time in the construction of a new Indo-Aryan Nazi religion. After World War II, this discussion was continued by prominent neo-fascist ideologues. Both of our books have stimulated a great discussion about the ideological sources of religious fundamentalism and about the clash of religions. And the Trimandis go on to say, it is a fact but the Shambhala war ideology of the Kalashakra Tantra has led to aggressive behavior, megalomaniacal visions, and conspiracy theories both in the history of Asia as well as in that of religious fascism and neo-fascism. Already in the SS Ammerba, where Heinrich Tilghner's Nazi religion was born, there was an interest in the contents of the Kalachakra Tantra. The influential fascist and cultural philosopher Julius Evola saw in the mythic world of Shambhala an esoteric center of a secret warrior race. This vision is today still firmly anchored in the religious ideas of the international far-right movement. That alone makes it necessary for the Dalai Lama to distance himself clearly from the warmongering Shambhala myth. Instead of this, he has cultivated friendly contacts with people such as the ex-SS man Bruno Begay, convicted as helping to murder more than 86 Jews, and Heinrich Harr, author of Seven Years in Tibet, a chronicle of his experience with the Dalai Lama over seven years prior to exile in India. The homepage of the government in exile shows the 14th Dalai Lama between Bruno Begay on his right and Heinrich Harr on his left. Begay has been a member of the famous SS-Tibet expedition organized by the SS in 1938 and 1939, whose primary goal was to find traces of an ancient, lost Indo-Aryan religion in the Himalayas. And by the way, the propaganda film produced by Goebbels' propaganda ministry in 1943 was then shown to German television audiences during the Cold War, as we looked at in our last program. Some occult... uh, Continuing with what the Tramondes say, some occult leaders in the SS were convinced that Tibetan lamas are the key holders of these Indo-Aryan mysteries. Begay... Is highly respected by the government of Tibet in exile as a chief witness for the political independence of the country in the 1930s and 1940s of the last century. Merely unknown until now are the compacts of the Dalai Lama with the French SS collaborator, convinced anti-Semite, recognized Orientalist, and color Chakra Tantra expert Jean, Marc Riviere, in his absence, convicted and given the death sentence for turning Jews over to the Gestapo in France. By the way, that man's name, Jean G-E-A-N, Marc M-A-R-Q-U-E-S, hyphen Riviere, R-I-V-I-E-R-E, continuing with what the Tremontese say. The founder of an esoteric Hitler movement, the ex- Chilean diplomat Miguel Serrano, promoter of an extremely racist SS mysticism, which is based on tantric practices and on the idea of the Shambhala warriors, met the Dalai Lama four times. Well-known became his relationship with the Japanese terrorist, that is to say the Dalai Lamas, well-known became his relationship with the Japanese terrorist Shoko Asahara, whom he described even after the Tokyo sarin gas attacks, as, quote, his friend, albeit an imperfect one, unquote. Only later did he distance himself from the guru. Asahara's doomsday philosophy was mainly influenced by the Shambhala ideology and by Tibetan Tantrism, unquote, and also, by the way, by Adolf Hitler. Uh, Shoko Asahara was the head of the Alm Shinrikyo cult, in Japan, and that gas attack, uh, sarin gas attack on the Tokyo subway, helps to destabilize the one, <laughs> the one uh, regime, one uh, administration that uh, in post World War II Japanese history that wasn't from the Liberal Democratic Party. Uh, now in. Uh, a number of programs. Uh, we have spoken about uh, a primary financier of the Liberal Democratic Party. Uh, he also was a key individual involved both with the living of China and with the Japanese collaboration with uh, the Kuomintang on the heroin traffic. And he also became a primary uh, operative uh, in the Cold War in Asia on behalf of CIA. And he was a master, I should say a linchpin of the post-World War II drug traffic, which he engaged in on behalf of the Japanese with the collaboration of the royal family of Japan. And he also worked very closely with the Kuomintang. One of the things that uh, is discussed in the passage we're about to read, and that is the uh, collaboration between the Kuomintang and uh, Yoshio Kodama and uh, the first the. Japanese occupation forces on what is now called Taiwan, the island of Formosa, and but later uh, with, again, the Kuomintang of Chiang Kai-shek that was basically centered on Taiwan. In addition to his very strong links with the CIA, his one, One could not exaggerate his involvement in the drug traffic. It should be known again that Yoshio Kodama is one of the financiers of the early Liberal Democratic Party in Japan. And uh, we have spoken about this in a couple of shows. We've already read this passage into the record in one of our uh, programs. I think it bears repeating. Uh, as we speak on uh, October 20th of the year 2021, there is a lot of uh, bloviating about Taiwan and how the uh, Chinese are going to uh, occupy, they're going to attack Taiwan. I would be very surprised if they attacked Taiwan. Uh, uh, China hasn't been in the war in more than 40 years, and the only major war they have been in since the conclusion of the Chinese Civil War in 1949 was the Korean War, and we've already discussed the uh, entry of China into that conflict. Uh, time permitting, perhaps. Uh, we will speak about uh, Taiwan, but uh, again, it really is a large subject. I think that there, is a, there certainly is a lot of... Saber raveling, uh, Taiwan's restriction of semiconductor sales. To, uh, China, and also the illegal presence of military advisors in Taiwan, that probably is one of the irritants, uh, for the, to China. Uh, bear in mind that China was just attacked with the, uh, uh, COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, we've spoken about that at great length, and we will update that in another program at the uh, conclusion of this series. But again, as one Attempts to obtain political and historical perspective on Taiwan. Bear in mind that it was occupied by the Japanese and became part of the Japanese Empire. And uh, then later at the Cairo Talks, at which uh, Chiang Kai-shek and Madam Chiang Kai-shek, Nei uh, Mei Ling-sung, were primary participants, it was given to Chiang Kai-shek uh, by the, uh, as part of the post- World War II dispensation of colonial territories. We're going to uh, about Kadama Yoshi, who by the way, along with Sasakawa Raichi, was a primary financier of the Unification Church of Some Young Moon, which appears to be an extension of the patriotic and ultranationalist societies of uh, uh, that uh, led the ascent of Japanese militarism and fascism around the world. And both Kadama Yoshio and Sasakawa Goeji were deeply involved in Operation Golden Lily. We're going to turn once again to the remarkable text, again, as important a book as has ever been written. And I would go so far as to say that I think without having read this book, you really... Uh, are not in the position past the point to understand the world you live in. The book is called Gold Warriors, America's Secret Recovery of Your Monsters, Gold by Sterling and Peggy Seagrave, uh, hard and soft cover editions published by the Verissel Press. We've uh, done many programs about Gold Warriors and including um, an interview with Peggy Seagrave and an interview with both Sterling and Peggy Seagrave. The interview with Peggy Seagrave is for the record, I believe, 428, and the interview with both of them for the record, 689. Of Kadami Yoshio, his collaboration, his pivotal role in the drug traffic, his collaboration with the Kuomintang, his collaboration with the Royal Family of Japan, and some of the political history of Taiwan, we read, Another source of underground funds was Kabama, who was reported to have amassed some $13 billion in war loot for his personal use. This included two truckloads of diamonds, gold bars, platinum ingots, radium, copper, and other vital materials. In order to curry favor with MacArthur's men, Shukun Bundun said Kabama turned the over to ESCAP. That was the... Uh, american slash MacArthur occupation government of uh, post-World War II Japan. In Tokyo Journal, John Carroll states that at wars and, quote, had a good portion of his valuables transported to the vault of the imperial family in the imperial palace, unquote. Despite his lifelong involvement in murder, kidnapping, drugs, and extortion, Kadama is said to have been regarded by Emperor Hirohito as a true patriot, possibly because of the great sums he generated for Golden Lily. This may explain why Japan's top gangster was permitted to hide some of his loot in palace vaults, but it goes deeper to include narcotics. In the spring of 1945, Kadama made a quick trip to Taiwan to see that its many heroin factories were dismantled for return to Japan, along with remaining stocks of heroin and morphine. On his return, Kodama was assigned to be a special advisor to the Emperor's uncle, Prince Higashikumi, who served as Japan's Prime Minister at Bibin. On his return, Kodama was assigned to be a special advisor to the emperor's uncle, Prince Higashikumi, who served as Japan's prime minister briefly at the start of the U.S. occupation. According to Kadama's own memoir, immediately after the surrender, Higashikumi had, quote, two or three of us counselors arranged a meeting, and secretly, unknown to his cabinet ministers, Higashikumi visited General MacArthur in Yokohama. Kadama provides no details of what transpired at this meeting or whether he accompanied the prince. Kadama then spent two years in Sagamo prison as an indicted war criminal, but was magically released in mid-1948 when he made a deal with General Willoughby to give the CIA a hundred million dollars equal to one billion dollars in today's values. This payment but bought Kabama his freedom from prison and from any prosecution for war crimes. The money was placed in one of the secret slush funds controlled by the CIA station at the US Embassy. So, subsequently, Kabama was put directly on the CIA payroll where he remained for many years until his death in nineteen eighty four. Pad Sultz of the New York Times wrote quote Kadama had a working relationship with the CIA, unquote. Chalmers Johnson said Kobama was, quote, probably the CIA's chief asset in Japan, unquote. While literally an employee of the U.S. government, Kadama continued to oversee Japan's post-war drug trade. Heroin labs were moved back not only from Taiwan, but from North China, Manchuria, and Korea. Trainees who had collaborated with Japan in drug processing and distribution were given sanctuary and began operating from from Japanese soil. One more time. While literally an employee of the U.S. government, Kodama continued to oversee Japan's post-war drug trade. Heroin labs were moved back not only from Taiwan, but from North China, Manchuria, and Korea. Chinese who had collaborated with Japan in drug processing and distribution were given sanctuary and began operating from Japanese soil. Two of the three major players in Asian narcotics soon died. Nationalist China's General Tai Li was assassinated in a 1946 plane crash. Shanghai godfather Yu Xing died in Hong Kong of natural causes in 1951. Kodama, was left as Asia's pop drug lord while on the U.S. payroll. This could have been embarrassing for Japan's dominant role in narcotics was widely known and undisputed, but a Cold War hush descended over it like an Arctic whiteout. During the occupation, U.S. propaganda characterized Asia's drug trade as exclusively the enterprise of leftists, and communist agents. In truth, it was dominated by Kodama in Japan and by Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek through the Kuomintang Opium Armies based in the Golden Triangle who were under the direct control of the Generalissimo's son, Chang Ching Kuo, the Kuomintang Chief of Military Intelligence at that time. The two top Kuomintang opium warlords in the Golden Triangle, General Tuan and General Lee, spoke to us openly of this one more time. In truth, it, that is to say the Asian drug trade, was dominated by Kobama in Japan, and by General Chiang Kai-shek through the Kuomintang Opium Armies based in the Golden Triangle, who were under the direct control of the General son, Chiang Ching-kuo, the Kuomintang Chief of Military Intelligence at that time. The two top Kuomintang Opium Warlords in the Golden Triangle, General Tuan and General Li, spoke to us openly of this. By the way, that uh, son of Chiang Kai-shek, Chiang Ching-kuo, who was the Kuomintang's chief of military intelligence, is not uh, the son who was spoken of in our last program, who was involved as not only a weapons trafficker uh, in, uh, involved with German munitions firms, but who also had been part of one of the Wehrmacht units that occupied Austria during the Anschluss of 1938. Uh as was discussed by the brilliant Douglas Valentine in his book, The CIA as Organized Crime, published in Softcover by the Clarity, C L A R I P Y Press, and copyrighted twenty seventeen by Douglas Valentine, uh the Kuomintang slash green gang dominance of the narcotics traffic uh basically paved the way for uh, the U.S. government's uh, deep involvement with the narcotics traffic. Uh, again, from the CIA's organized crime, talking about how Jack Service, or John Service, a State Department officer who warned that not only was Chiang Kai-shek uh, incapable of solving China's problems, but that he was dependent on the opium trade, and like many of the Foreign Service officers who were telling the truth, they were stifled, but they were warning also that the uh, oh. Policies of Chiang Kai-shek of not fighting the uh, Japanese invaders, often collaborating with them, uh, would ultimately drive China into the arms of Mao Zedong. Uh, one of the things we looked at two programs ago, we also looked at it in AFA-11, and for the record, 1095, was the fact that after the formal conclusion of hostilities in Asia, thousands of Japanese troops were used, kept under arms, and used to fight the communists, one can, uh, uh, it, it is difficult, perhaps impossible to think of any tactic that would have been more effective at mobilizing the Chinese populace on behalf of the communists than doing just that. Uh, rereading a section from the CIA's organized crime that we uh, read earlier in this series. John Services persecution was fair warning that anyone linking the nationalist Chinese to drug smuggling would, at a minimum, be branded a communist sympathizer and his reputation ruined. That is how the U.S. drug operation is still protected today, although security for the operation has improved and whistleblowers are smeared in other ways. i just ask... Uh, Gary Webb, although he hasn't had much to say lately, after his two-bullet, quote, suicidal, quote, in 2004. Continuing, After World War II, the business of managing the government's involvement in the illicit narcotics trade was given to the CIA because it could covertly conduct support operations for, among others, the nationalist Chinese in Taiwan. The CIA also relocated and supplied one of Chiang's armies to Burma. This Kuomintang army, by the way, I alluded to in the passage from Gulf Warriors that we just read, this Kuomintang army supported itself through the opium trade, and the CIA flew the opium to places where it was converted to heroin and sold to the mafia. The other bureaucracies, the military and the departments of state, justice, and treasury, provided protection along with the China lobby congressmen and senators who controlled the little information that was made public. One more time. The other bureaucracies, the military and the departments of state, justice, and treasury, provided protection along with the China lobby congressmen and senators who controlled the little information that was made public. Something of an extension of that... Uh, is discussed in the book that we have uh, covered uh, before. This book is called The American Deep State. Wall Street, Big Oil, and the Attack on American Democracy by the brilliant Berkeley researcher Peter Dale Scott. It was published in hardcover by Roman, R-O-W-N-A-N, and Littlefield, and copyright 2015 by Peter Dale Scott, one of the uh, deans of American political science and publishing. And what he talks about is the evolution of the Kuomintang drug traffic, uh, it again was involved with the CIA and was expanded to Thailand as well. Uh, Thailand, like many other countries in Asia, including the aforementioned Taiwan, uh, South Korea, uh, were established as dictatorships by the U.S. in the wake of World War II uh, in the name of democracy really to fight communism. And Peter Dale Scott uh, relates something really quite remarkable about uh, the post-World War II institutionalized American involvement with the drug trade. And he writes, In the American State, Wall Street Big Oil and the Attack on American Democracy, as follows. At the time of the Marshall Plan slush fund in Europe, the CIA also took steps which resulted in drug money to support anti-communist armies in the Far East. In my book, American War Machine, I tell how the CIA, using former Office of Strategic Services or OSS agent Paul Halliwell, created two proprietary firms as infrastructure for a Kuomintang army in Burma, an army which quickly became involved in managing and developing the opium there. The two firms were Sea Supply Incorporated in Bangkok and Civil Air Transport Incorporated, later Air America in Taiwan. This allowed the CIA to deny responsibility for the flights when CAT planes, having delivered arms from Sea Supply to the opium-going army, then returned to Taiwan with opium for the Kuomintang. Even after the CIA officially severed its connection to the Kuomintang Army in 1953, its proprietary firm, Sea Supply Incorporated, supplied arms for a CIA-led paramilitary force, Paru, P-A-R-U, that was also financed, at least in part, by the drug traffic. Profits from Thailand filtered back, in part through the same Paul Hellowell, as donations to members from both parties in Congress. Thai big paper Phal sriyanon S-R-I-Y-A-N-O-N, a drug trafficker who was then alleged to be the richest man in the world, quote, hired lawyer Paul Hallowell as a lobbyist, in addition to former OSS chief William Donovan, who in 1953 to 1955 was U.S. ambassador to Thailand. Donovan and Hallowell divided the Congress between them, with Donovan assuming responsibility for the Republicans and Hallowell taking the Democrats. In the 2021, we're hearing a lot about bipartisanship or the lack thereof, at least uh, in terms of uh, welcoming clandestine drug profits as contributions. Uh, there was indeed what might be termed a narco bipartisanship in Congress in this time period. One more time. Profits from Thailand filtered back in part through the same Paul Hellowell as donations to members from both parties in Congress. Pi Big paper Foul Sviannon, a drug trafficker who was then alleged to be the richest man in the world, hired lawyer Paul Hallowell as a lobbyist, in addition to former OSS chief William Donovan, who in 1953 to 1955 was U.S. ambassador to Thailand. Donovan and Hallowell divided the Congress between them, with Donovan assuming responsibility for the Republicans and Hallowell taking the Democrats. That, folks, is bipartisanship, eh? Uh, We are going to continue uh, with the momentum uh, along that train track that Stanley Hornbeck alluded to uh, as it's uh, one of the stops being in uh, Saigon in 1975. We're going to talk about uh, a bit about the war in vietnam and uh, how that uh derived from the same basic forces although it is fairly well known today that vietnam and china uh have uh, a long and uh hostile history uh, vietnam had long resisted conquest by china but actually the last time china was in a war was a border war in 1979 uh, the fact of the matter is, in the 50s and early 60s, uh, the Vietnamese and Ho Chi Minh, like the Chinese and Mao Zedong, that's all, uh, were seen as part of the yellow peril. The red scare meets the yellow peril, as an article from uh, the magazine The Fairness and Accuracy in being uh spoke about in connection. We, we We accessed that article in connection with the pandemic. And one of the publishing empires that helped to launch the Vietnam War uh, was the time incorporated publishing empire of Henry Luce. He was an um he basically adulated not only uh, Chiang Kai-shek, but Madame Chiang Kai-shek. He also was an admirer of fascism and, uh, openly, uh, endorsed the twisting of uh, reportage from China when it didn't make Chiang Kai-shek look good. Uh, as a kid growing up, uh, I remember re- reading Life Magazine. I'm looking at the still pictures of the Zipruber film, and they didn't make sense to me. Um, but I figured, well, I'm just a kid, and I just can't understand these complex things that adults understand. In fact, uh, Henry Luce and Life Magazine and Time Incorporated bought the Zipruber film and then altered it in fundamental ways, including uh, publishing still frames from the Zipruber film that were out of order. We will talk about that because it was the assassination of JFK that led to America's involvement in the Vietnam War, as we have looked at in many programs. However, we will be talking about that in our next broadcast. By the way, there is good material. There is a lot of good reportage on the Superior Film and Henry Luce and Life Magazine's handling of it. We will be relying on Into the Nightmare by Joseph McBride. However, we will do that in our next program. This concludes Public Record Program number twelve hundred and nine, The Narco Fascism of Chiang Kai Shek and the Kuomintang Part sixteen. This is being recorded on October twentieth of the year twenty twenty one. I'm Dave Emory. Have fun.